then welcome to another episode of the Union of the Unwanted. Of course, you can go to the Union of to find links to all our all the platforms we're on, all, all of the social media platforms we're on. Uh, typically, tonight show is a little different because Mike's not with us, but typically the show is live every other Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Rockfin. Then within a day or two, it's available on all the audio platforms and uh, Odyssey and probably a couple other uh, video platforms. So uh, so thank you everybody for being with me. I like to, typically I like to go to uh, the new guests, people who haven't been on the show yet, maybe give a little bit of a background. And also uh, Naomi, I know you're digging deep in, into uh, some paperwork and documents so that I'm, I'm sure you can inform the viewers of and, uh, and maybe give a brief background and then we'll go to uh, Chris and, and do the same. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah. So jump, jump in now. We can let people know uh, for people oh. who might not know uh, who you are, maybe sure. a little bit background, then we can jump into some of your, your current work. Sure, thank you. So I'm Dr. Naomi Wolf. Um, I'm a nonfiction writer, um, and I've written seven, I guess, eight nonfiction bestsellers, usually about women's issues and civil liberties. Um, I'm the CEO of a tech platform, a civic tech platform called dailycloud.io. Our mission is to make democracy easier to drive and um, and, and more empowering for citizens uh, through digital technology. And I'm the author of a book called The Bodies of Others. Most recently, the subtitle is The New Authoritarians, COVID-19 and the War Against the Human. And um, it makes the case that the last two and a half years have been uh, a, a kind of a loose alliance of bad actors um, ranging from the World Economic Forum to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I mean, these are now familiar ideas. They weren't when I was writing it. Um, to uh, China, which plays a big role, and, and big tech, and that these companies aligned to basically make war on the West, um, and that the vaccine mandates uh, and vaccine passports are a critical part of that. Um, so subsequent to that book being published, uh, I happen to kind of um, oversee a really important coming together of experts. Uh, there was a call for experts on my platform, Daily Cloud, and on Steve Bannon's platform, The War Room, um, to read the Pfizer documents. Of course, these are the uh, tens of thousands of internal documents released under court order um, via a lawsuit by Aaron Series firm. Uh, and these are internal documents that the FDA asked the court to keep hidden for 75 years. Um, Pfizer and the FDA thought they would never see the light of day, but uh, they, they, you know, they're, they're available now. And, you know, they're impossible to cover without expert reports because they're so technical and journalists generally who are lay people, you know, like me, uh, we would not understand them without um, experts reading through them and, and breaking down what's, critical about them, important in them into these easy to read reports. So we were joined by 3,500 um, experts ranging from physicians and RNs to biostatisticians, medical fraud investigators, uh, lab clinicians, biological scientists, um, and they have produced almost 40 reports now. And the headline, I'm trying to keep it super brief, is that they found a massive crime against humanity, massive crime against humanity that, that was known 
right, uh, that Pfizer knew their injections were killing people, damaging kids' hearts. They knew they didn't work um, a month after the rollout. Uh, they knew that um, they needed to hire 2,400 full-time employees to handle the flood of adverse events they were getting. And that means Pfizer knew uh, at the FDA knew also because at the bottom of these documents, it says FDA confidential. Everything went to the FDA. They were custodians of these documents. Um, but, you know, they knew that 1,200 people died and four of them died on the day they were injected. And there are, and this is really hard to kind of convey in, you know, in language that's, that's suitable for it, because the scale is so huge, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of unbelievably severe disabling adverse events um, uh, recorded in Pfizer documents ranging from horrific neurological events, Guillain-Barre, uh, encephalies, blood clots, lung clots, hemorrhages, strokes, heart attacks, thrombocytopenia, um, you know, horrific uh muscular MS type symptoms, uh, horrible joint problems, actually, which people really are unaware of, um, you know, crippling arthritis, uh, lumps, raging cancers, and, you know, horrible harms to um, specifically to reproduction. And then I'll just leap ahead. Um, the scale of the uh, harms and deaths and disabilities and the fact that Pfizer really understood clearly what they were doing from the internal documents and the fact that my own individual research, original research found China now has the IP for the BioNTech injection and a Chinese pharmaceutical company called Fosun Pharma is manufacturing them in America, in Boston and in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, so, you know, this injection is being manufactured by our, 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 our sworn existential adversaries. Um, who want our land, want our our natural resources, don't want our population. Um, but in addition to that, the last thing I'll say is that the um, Pfizer documents reveal a complete 360-degree attack on human reproduction, um, ranging from uh, Pfizer telling men who were having intercourse with women who were of childbearing age, to either abstain or to use a condom and an effective birth control because Pfizer defined um, exposure of vaccine as including sexual intercourse, uh, notably at the moment of conception. Um, Pfizer uh, knew that the lipid nanoparticles, the mRNA, the spike protein, leave the injection site, even though we were told they don't, and travel within 15 minutes to major organs all over your body. But you know, liver, spleen, adrenals, but if you're a woman, they accumulate in your ovaries so that with each, and they don't have a visible way of leaving the body, leaving the ovaries. So with each injection, first dose, second dose, booster, second booster, women are packing industrial fats, lipid nanoparticles and polyethylene glycol, which is a petroleum byproduct into their ovaries, which may, may be one reason for the horrific menstrual harms, which are also documented fully in the Pfizer documents. They're like, 20 different names for ruined menses in the Pfizer documents. Um, but, you know, very quickly, lipid nanoparticles traverse the placenta. Uh, they, they traverse every membrane in the human body. They traverse the blood-brain barrier. But if they traverse the placenta, you get a compromised fetal environment. Um, and Dr. Jim Thorpe is seeing these placentas that are like, have nettings of calcifications from the inflammation from the lipid nanoparticles. Um, they, they show that they poison breast milk, uh, women's breast milk 
who are vaccinated turns blue green. There's polyethylene glycol. NIH studies are finding in vaccinated moms' breast milk. Um, babies are having failure to thrive. They're vomiting. They're in convulsions. One poor baby in the Pfizer documents died um, from drinking uh, vaccinated moms' breast milk. Um, I'll fast forward. We're seeing a baby die-off around the world, doubling of the neonatal deaths in Scotland, 34% um, rise in neonatal deaths among vaccinated moms in one hospital in Israel, 86 babies dying in Ontario, when usually they have five or six, and a global drop in the birth rate, according to Igor Chudov, looking at um, national government databases of the birth rate. And we know why. Dr. Thorpe is seeing in his practice and the mechanisms we found um, with our experts uh, show how this is happening, fetal abnormalities, um, grotesque levels of miscarriages at of, of 34 women who, whose pregnancies were followed to term, 28 of them lost their babies in the Pfizer documents. Um, he's seen chromosomal abnormalities um, and, and women are reporting also slow benchmarks for their I mean, vaccinated moms for their child's development. Um, and, you know, Dr. Thorpe points out that these lipid nanoparticles, the, the fetus accumulates them in the brain and the and, and, and also in their own um, reproductive organs. So you're not just like harming the reproductive capacity of the mom, you're harming the, the ova of the fetal baby girl. And then the last thing I'll say, I mean, I could go on and on and on about the grotesque levels of reproductive harms and the fact that there are all these creepy experiments like Mengele type experiments in the Pfizer documents around like dissecting the genital reproductive tissue of rats that have been injected or not injected like they're looking at this um, but penises and testes uh, our most recent three reports show that the lipid nanoparticles of course traverse the membranes to the testes and they don't just drop um, sperm count and sperm motility, which the journal Andrology confirmed, but they also are going into, and this is our project director, Amy Kelly's original research, they're going into little boys and baby boys and fetal boys' um, testes, and they're damaging the epididymis that the sperm goes through, but also the Leydig cells and the Sertoli cells, which are like the factory of masculinity. So they're damaging the, the parts of the male testicles that allow boys to turn into men. And again, who got mandated? Firefighters, police, soldiers, all the big strong men who would keep us safe if there were an invasion or a kinetic war. Um, and, and, and lastly, I'll just say pretty horrifically, and it's just so interesting to me as a woman that when the damage to male sexual uh, health got reported and the news was broken by Amy Kelly and my team, suddenly all these entities began backing away from the boosters. But um, she also found that it the, uh, the materials damaged the penis and caused severe injury to the penis, including just horrible things, you know, I don't need to go into uh, involving um, like thrombocytopenias of the penile veins. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say before I draw, and, and her next report is about impotence, of which there's tons in the Pfizer documents. So um, it's, you know, it's clearly an attack on, on human reproduction. Um, and yeah, and the last thing I guess I'll say pretty obviously is that we're all aware of the problems with blood and blood clotting and blood clots and um, gross weirdness in the blood 
but I wrote a book called Vagina about female sexuality. And I looked pretty closely, and this was some time ago, but I looked pretty closely at, you know, male and female sexual response. And it's blood-based, you know, for both genders. You know, you can't have an orgasm if you don't have engorgement. It's a circulatory, it's a, a, a vascular um you know, response. So, so it's not surprising that Amy is finding uh, potency issues. And I'm sure if she were to do a search, she would find um, orgasm issues for women because it, you know, all of those responses depend on circulation. So that is the horror show in a nutshell that the Pfizer documents reveal. There's a lot of happy boyfriends that are telling their girlfriends that orgasm problems are the vaccine or something else. <laughs> None of it sounds very happy to me, but um, it's certainly going to change human like conversations. Yeah. So, so aren't there aren't there some lawsuits in the works right now? Yes, that's correct, uh, Ms. Newby. Um, we well, so many lawsuits. My God. So our lawyers, uh, Scott Street and John Howard, who won the lawsuit against the Biden administration around masks and transportation, um, have sued on our behalf. Um, Pfizer. Uh, they just launched that lawsuit. They also brought a citizen petition against the FDA, which is the first step they had to clear bureaucratically before they could sue Pfizer. And I, um, they also brought a lawsuit against Remdesivir, which is unrelated to the Pfizer documents. But I also found out recently that the deplatforming I experienced in June of 2021 um, when I called attention to women reporting menstrual symptoms after being vaccinated, uh, that was brought about because both the CDC and the White House were colluding with Twitter and Facebook to deplatform, to you know, to call attention to my tweet, and in the case of the CDC, to to put a BOLO, a BOLO, be on the lookout for disinformation like mine, which turned out to be completely true, and by suppressing conversation about menstrual dysregulation, um, the CDC and the White House caused untold damage that possibly permanently harmed the fertility of who knows how many possibly millions of women. And this leads me to uh, Chris a little bit because we're talking about the problem. And of course, one thing everybody's also thinking about is what's the origin story of the problem? Where did it come from? And uh, I had Chris on some years ago, and then we reconnected after 2020 because I think her research only became even more fascinating. Um, but Chris, can you give a little bit of a background and also a, a little bit about your book and some of the research you've been doing? Yeah, so my name is Chris Newby. I'm a science writer, an engineer by training. My terminal degree was at Stanford, and uh, I started as a tech writer. And then my husband and I got really bad chronic Lyme and all of a sudden Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases became my favorite subject. I did a documentary about Lyme disease, which is available on Prime under our skin. And it really shows uh, the plight of Lyme disease patients. And I would say Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases are the prequel to what Dr. Wolf is saying about our broken healthcare system and how they deal with um, controversial political diseases and um, how hard it is to get to the, the truth out about that. So um, I did the documentary. It showed the money trail of Lyme disease and how that might be affect, affecting how patients are treated. And then uh, when I did the documentary, 
which took about five years. I was, uh, it moved me deeply because of the suffering going on across the U.S. The Lyme disease problem was bigger than the government would admit. They were denying that chronic Lyme exists. They're saying that two to four weeks of antibiotics would cure it, and it's just not true. And they released a vaccine, which was pulled from the market. Um, there are differing opinions on why. I won't get into it here. And then uh, I went and took a job at Stanford Medical School as a, as a science writer and communicator. I was in the clinical trials group. So uh, real familiarity with how clinical trials are run and vaccines are developed. And then I was pretty much decided I was done with Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. And then uh, I ran across two bits of information one was from Willie Bergdorfer, who's the Lyme disease discoverer, who said I was several decades in the, the biological weapons program. He weaponized fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes for Fort Detrick, the headquarters there. And he said during the discovery, he covered up uh, some information about other agents that might be contributing to the disease. And, um, and then also I spoke to witnesses, a witness, and got documentation that supported the, um, the fact that the U.S. government dropped infected ticks on Cuban sugarcane workers in 1963. So, so anyways, uh, I guess that uh, being, uh, being bitten by a tick in 2002 changed the course of my life, and now I've dedicated my life to trying to get the truth out about tick-borne diseases and fix the medical system so we can help this uh, ever-growing population of chronically ill people. And, and today I work half-time for a foundation called Invisible International that is um, working to improve the system for treating people with these invisible diseases, which includes long COVID and um, nasty tick-borne diseases. So that's, that's where I come from. Yeah, and you went down the bioweapon rabbit hole, and that's that's where this is all coming together in regards to the possibility of COVID being bio a bioweapon and whatnot. Um, what, what was your opinions on that with your history and knowing that some of these diseases could have been linked to, you know, research studies, a, a bioweapon of some sort? Uh, what, what was your opinion when the whole COVID thing happened? Well, when my... My hypothesis was floated in my book. I was snubbed and discredited. And I was, you know, I'm an engineer by training. I worked in Stanford Medical School. So I really did five years of research for the book. It was all uh, very well cited. I was very clear about what I knew and what I didn't. But I saw the machinery of the government <laughs> orchestrate this cover up. And I'm sure Dr. Wolf has personally experienced it. So I would say I, I haven't researched the COVID lab leak theory, but uh, I'm keeping an open mind that it could have happened based on my experience with this huge bioweapons program. I mean, I, uh, intuitively, it seems like it could be a lab leak, and I'm sure Dr. Wolf can speak to that. Oh, can I jump in and ask you some follow-up questions, Dr. Yumi? Sure. Thank you. Um, so... What, I mean, I'm sure this is all in your book and forgive me, but why would a 
a U.S. defense entity release harmful, in, uh, you know, whatever weaponized uh, ticks on U.S. soil. I mean, I can see using it as a weapon. I mean, not that I like it, but I can see using it as a weapon um, against, you know, enemies or enemy societies. But why would they do that? Was that an accident? A, and my second question, sorry, is there's an entity called the... the um, Crary Institute, honey, what's that? Cary Institute in Millbrook. And they seem to be doing experiments like this. And I just wonder if you're familiar with it. I've heard of the Cary Institute. I, I, in my book, I sort of put into context this huge entomological and biological weapons program, which involves stuffing arthropods with disease agents. And then later it progressed to just growing bacteria and viruses in sometimes mediums that had toxins to create super weapons. And the process for making a reliable bioweapon would take 10 to 20 years because it would have to be deployed by some guy on an airplane who drops an incendiary cluster bomb on it. You know, so there, there are a lot of experiments that happen along the way and lab leaks happen. We know that. So there there would be the basic research for concepts the pentagon would sell send over military objectives willie Bergdorfer, who discovered lyme disease would take that objective and it might be like oh can you find can you isolate the chemical that creates tick-borne paralysis you know so he would work on that and send the results to fort diedrich the Cambio headquarters they would do a small pilot study and then they would take it to a proving ground like Dugway Proving Ground in Utah and do pilot studies, most of them not controlled. So stuff got out into the, the areas around Salt Lake City and Provo and et cetera. Wow. And, and, then, and then they would do, sometimes they do tests like in the Pacific. So there were a lot of uncontrolled experiments so that's why it would they got out so willie Bergdorfer, who was the guy who said pretty much a confession i believe that the the sickness and lyme disease wasn't just caused by this the spirochete burley Bergdorferi, but this other agent that we would um grow in large flasks or vats and aerosolize it and spray whoa it. whoa planes oh <laughs> so there were open air experiments, uh, tugboats went, this is in the 50s, up and down past San Francisco Bay and sprayed live agents with, that they said were simulants. They didn't cause harm, but they did kill some people. They did it in the Pennsylvania Turnpike. They sprayed it from the back of trucks. Oh, is this all in your book or is this? Yeah, it is. I mean, some of it, I mean, there's a lot of it on Wikipedia right now. Look up SHAD, S-H-A-D. That's some of the airborne experiments they did in, in 1950. Oh. The things I, I revealed are the extent of the tick-borne <laughs> disease weapon, weapons program and, um, and that we dropped infected insects on Cuba. Now, there have been many rumors about Korea, and there's, there's like two researchers respected who have a lot of evidence, circumstantial evidence on that. But 
The problem is, even though this happened 50 years ago, they haven't declassified the documents. And so my my passion is saying, hey, declassify these so we know what was released where. So we're not wasting a lot of research time on antidotes because there there can be like 80 different germs inside a tick, 28 in the U.S. And that's an impossible diagnostics um, challenge. Chris, can I ask you a question? Sorry, that um, when in your discovery that this stuff was released on the U.S. population or exposed to it, was the idea there to test it out? Or do you think they actually targeted Americans? And I would have that question for both Chris and Naomi, that if the connection with COVID, they say there's a lab leak. I mean, I wonder sometimes if it's intentional. It was intentional under Lyme, the motive, I wonder, and could it have been intentional under COVID in either of your opinion? Well, the Lyme discoverer, Willy Bergdorfer, was a Swiss-German from Switzerland who came here in 1951. Uh, he was, one reason he was hired, he had experience working with Q-fever, which is a select agent bioweapon. He also spoke fluent German, so he was used at Fort Detrick to pick the brain of the former Nazi bioweapons people from Operation Paperclip to extract knowledge. You know, how do you mass produce ticks, et cetera. Uh, so what Willie told me was that uh, accidents happen. He wouldn't go as far as to say, was it deliberate or accidental? I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't give me details and he was really old then. Uh, so I keep an open mind. It could have been like some German plot that we don't know about or it could have been purposeful. I do know that Willie uh, in 74 opened up a secret Swiss bank account that his family did not know about. And he all of a sudden started keeping a set of books right when he got back that went until he retired. So it was almost as if he had this money and if someone said, oh, you're spending lavishly, which he did after he got back from this conference and set up the bank account that uh, there, you know, there would be a cookbooks that he could show and say, see, I didn't get any extra money. I mean, every penny he spent was in there. And that was quite unusual. But of course, I can't prove that because I can't look at the records of a Swiss bank account. Um, you'd like me to speak to... Yeah, I just wondered if you think, because I mean, if you wanted to be very cynical or conspiratorial, you really just total, you know, base greed, you could say that Big Pharma needs people to be sick and we're just not sick enough. I mean, I know that this simplistic and I'm not saying there's evidence for that, but it's possible that since both of these diseases have, you know, long COVID and Lyme diseases forever, and it, it's kind of hard to detect, but it seems to be related to a lot, a lot of diseases that may, I, I remember I was listening to a podcast of Chris saying that uh, she'd been, she was going to a bunch of different specialists and getting a bunch of different treatments and nobody could really tie it together. I mean, it, it could be that sinister. Does any, do you, Naomi, think that's so are possible? you are you asking me if I think that COVID the virus is a bioweapon or if yeah the I, well I'm saying um I, I think people will say that there's a lab leak like that's a hypothesis that there was gain of function and that it got out I would go even further and say they might have let it out on purpose because look at all that they're getting out of it from all policy right, changes 
to pharma sales. Right, I understand. Well, my book, The Bodies of Others, definitely um, posits that um, this is all intentional. And I, the reason I feel confident doing that is that I was a political consultant, as I think I mentioned, to a vice president, to a presidential campaign. And so I've been in the rooms where, you know, history is decided. And very often, the reason I get very um, annoyed with, you know, the fact that this phrase conspiracy theorist floats around, not that you're kind of invoking it against, you know, like uh, intentionally, uh, you know, with full credibility, like you're not believing that phrase. I'm not suggesting that, but it's an annoying phrase because there is no question that um, outcomes are, and Dr. Newby can confirm this probably from her own experience with a big major institution, an outcome might be decided on that might not look good in the light of day. And the principle is protected from any, you know, direct knowledge or any fingerprints on the outcome, but the outcome is achieved. Um, so, you know, I, I always, since being a political consultant, I always tell people to read historical events backwards because when you're in the White House, people choose the objective. And then once they've chosen the objective, they go to the message guys and say, tell it, get a story that will persuade people to accept this objective. And often they have nothing to do with each other. So you look at who does it benefit, you know, China is the source of the la of the virus. China is the source of the PPE. China is the source of these um, injections that are killing everyone. Um, China, in alliance with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, are the funders of the World Health Organization, which you know was the narrator of what we had to do, the locking down. China was held up as the model for the lockdowns, which no one had ever heard of outside of like North Korea and the Warsaw ghetto, you know, before January of 2020. So does it look like an attack? And I have to credit my husband, Brian O'Shea, who spent 12 years in military intelligence and who alerted me at the very start of the pandemic. He said, this is China. And I'm like, oh, honey, I love you, but that's ridiculous. Well, you know, then he showed me, you know, multiple primary source documents, you know, that this is exactly China's methodology. And they think it's a failure to wage a kinetic war, a shooting war, um, you know, subvert and tenderize the enemy. That's what's happening to us. So um, that plus seeing, the other thing I know is that, and now I'm just talking about the, vo the vaccines, N normal White House procedure, you would not have a, an agency under the direction of the White House, which is the FDA, see harms to American citizens, not just for a week, but for month after month after month for 14 months and keep going, right? That is not normal. That is burning political capital. No one does that. So as a result, I have to conclude knowing how White Houses work, having been you know, married to a White House speechwriter, been around those, those rooms, um, I concluded that our, our, this administration is hostage to China and that Therefore, you you are getting a, an attack on the American people that is sustained that would never ever 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 happen under ordinary circumstances. That's my conclusion. I'm so sorry, everyone. I would love to stay and talk, but I, I do need to go and and you know do the do the shanatuba sort of things. But thank you all, and I'd love to uh, to hear what everyone has to say. But I'll watch the I'll watch the um, video. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it. Awesome. I know, Steve, you want to jump in? You had some things you want to say? Yeah, there's there's a handful of things. And we were fortunate enough on uh, on the morning show there, 
to have Amy Kelly on last week, I believe, week before it's kind of all mashed together, but uh, the uh, project director that Naomi's working with on the Pfizer documents and the way that she was describing what the lipid nanoparticles do is they basically I like bore through whatever barriers exist in your body, whether it be blood brain or, you know, whatever barrier uh, and that's what they're designed to do. And not only are we creating either potentially sterile or potentially testosterone or masculinity free human beings, there's now a whole subsect of uh, LGBTQ, LMNOP, IA, WKRP plus people who uh, are going to identify as eunuchs. Eunuchs. So there's eunuch rights that are now on the table when all else has been removed. And it just seems like the tie-in there uh, was a little bit too much because this is, I think, the second or third time that I've been hearing about the the quite literal demasculation uh, of men through these injections and products. But you should definitely get with Amy Kelly and have her on your show so that she can uh, she can go all in on this. If there's so much material to go through. I mean, it's hard to to sift it all out. And then when they get you get 55,000 documents a month. Yeah, that team does. And there's anywhere between 25 to 3500 people. But it's not like everybody's doing nothing but analysis 24 seven. That's just not how the process works. They've got to sift through 55 K a month. That's insane. And but even for us to talk about this stuff, I like to dig in and get the facts. But the breadth of it, of the problem is so great that it's impossible to discuss like an overview and also have access to all the depth of which I think is interesting about Chris's approach was you know, she did dig in. And I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how you ended up at Stanford. Was it because you were interested in the subject, given that it was something that touched you and you felt like it was related? What were you doing before? And forgive me for not knowing that. Uh, I was a tech writer in Silicon Valley. So I worked for Apple for a long time and um, Microsoft and as an engineer, you just learn how to learn and you just do the deep dive for marketing information or white papers. So I was I was able to learn stuff. And then when I got Lyme disease, I just did the deep dive on medical science and I did the documentary. So I was the lead researcher on that, working with a really talented director. And, uh, and so then this job came up. I lived right near Stanford and they needed a communicator. And since I had... I had a lot of uh, experience in communications at Apple and I had the tech background. I went there and um, so it was just really interesting. And when I started the book about halfway through my stint at Stanford, it was really great to be able to pick the brains of all these amazing researchers and scientists and just learn the basics of medical science and how treatments and vaccines get to the market, which is it's pretty hard. Um, and how you collect data and design a good study. And they were cooperative. They weren't labeling you as somebody who is trying to overturn the apple cart. And then also, like, it, it, does it, is your 
attitude towards these kind of subjects that they really are comprehensible to the layperson. I mean, short of really not knowing specific words that are kind of very jargony, is it, it was it really something that you think people could like do their own research or is that you think it's just it's a lifetime to to dig into like even just it's one really thing. really complicated especially genetics and i think that's why the jury's still out on uh was COVID a lag lab leak or come from a natural origin really complicated but i would say stanford was very supportive i kept the book under wraps for a really long time and then i asked for a book leave once i had a contract because i just didn't want the idea to get squashed and then also, you know, most of the researchers are funded by NIH at Stanford. And what I was saying, which is 100% true, is the NIH was one of the many government institutions, including universities, including Stanford, that worked on the biological weapons program. There were 50 universities, a lot of times the mini projects that would support a weapons system were compartmentalized. So. You know, for example, uh, the Ohio State was told, we just want to know the lethal dose for Rocky Mountain spotted fever if we spray it from aerosol. And so they took 67 monkeys and they got the lethal dose. Uh, and then the governments that told Ohio, well, the Ohio researchers, well, this is just, we want to know how much can be aerosolized and it might injure lab workers. Not that they were planning to spray it from planes. <laughs> And then Stanford worked on sort of the nozzles and how to separate the particles, the physics of spraying bacteria from planes. Um, somewhat unrelated, but did you have to like radically change your diet when you had uh, long-term Lyme disease? Is that something that you've, you've had to experience or because I do, I know somebody who had to completely cut all kinds of things out of her diet after she got long-term Lyme disease or permanent Lyme disease or whatever uh, the technical definition of it is. And is that something that's like common or is that rare? Is that a blood type thing? Do you know? Am I just talking silly here? No, I, I mean, everybody has a different body. You come with a different gene set. You were bitten by a tick and who knows what combo of germs were released in your body. Uh, and then the cure, the cure that everyone agrees with is if you give someone like two to four weeks of antibiotics in the very beginning, chances are you can keep the infection from becoming chronic. The problem is we don't have a Lyme disease test that works in the first month reliably. And a lot of doctors take a wait and see attitude and people become chronic. And then mainstream medicine has not acknowledged that chronic Lyme exists. Just like uh, long COVID, some people don't believe it's a real thing yet. And there's certainly no treatments for it. So uh, because of long-term antibiotics, some people do have long-term gut issues, but if you're with the right doctor who makes you take probiotics throughout the whole process, then like I have been cured uh, after IV antibiotics and I've been good at probiotics. So I've had no gut problems. Other people do. And if you undertreat the Lyme disease organism, you can, some people don't know or they didn't get enough antibiotics or it didn't resolve itself or they didn't get all the 
bugs in the joints and the brain and they have ongoing gut problems. Well, the Lyme disease topic, and I, and I told you, Chris, when you were on my show, probably both times, but uh, it, it was close to uh, me as, as, as a topic, as an interesting topic, because my mother had Lyme disease and she was misdiagnosed. And I live in Massachusetts, East Coasters. I mean, everybody knows somebody who's had Lyme disease. It's, it's quite common over here. And, um, it, you know, I know the rest of the U.S., it's, you're starting to see spots where it pops up. But in the East Coast, it's, it's everywhere. You, you hear about it all the time. And the weird thing is there's so many people who, who got Lyme disease and, and they have different symptoms, like radically different uh, reaction to it. You know, some people have um, digestive problems. Some people have joint pain. Some people have fatigue. Some people have uh, headaches. So it, it's it's really uh, a unusual and very unique disease because it, it just seems a, to react completely different with everybody. And then when my mother got Lyme disease and, and she still uh, has tons of issues uh, due to it because it took a long time for uh, the doctors to decide that like, hey, I think this might be Lyme disease. And my daughter got it, uh, not well, she got it when a couple years ago, she got a tick on her. I don't know if she officially got it or because we immediately put her on antibiotics, but she had a, a, the tick bite. This was during COVID. So they didn't want to see her. And I'm like, no, no, you got to see her. I'm like, this is serious. I'm like, she, she, we found a tick on her. The, the next day we saw the ring. And um and we're like panicking, and I'm calling the pediatrician. They're like, no, no, we don't need to see her. Just give her antibiotics. And um and like Chris said, obviously that really beats up your your uh your gut health. So we immediately got her on probiotics and prebiotics, and made sure she was taking that on a regular basis. But it's it was two completely different experiences. My daughter, who if she has any type of issue whatsoever, she'll tell me and sometimes exaggerates those things. And she didn't have any symptoms. She went on to antibiotics, had no symptoms. Uh, we took care of it immediately and she got to antibiotics in her system, two, three weeks, whatever it was, and she was good. My mother waited, didn't know what she had, and now she has, you know, long Lyme disease. So uh, it, it's such a unique disease. And it's amazing how, if it's not misdiagnosed, how quickly and easily can almost be taken care of. Uh, I don't know how common that is. If, if, if some people, even if you do take those antibiotics immediately might still have issues with it, but it seems like if it's not misdiagnosed, it can be taken care of pretty easily. One question I have you for you, uh, you Chris, is uh, this idea of like all these different reactions to the disease. Do you think it, would that give any more reason to believe that it is, it was a bioweapon? because it, people ha have so drastic different experiences with it? Uh, I, I don't think whether it's a bioweapon or not, who knows uh, Lyme disease. It's mostly the complexity of what's injected to you in, into you by a tick. So first of all, the tick bites you and the saliva suppresses your immune system and it has a numbing agent. So you don't know the ticks attached. But that, that suppression of your immune system can have happen up to a week. And so if they're find, scientists are now finding that tick can have two to four, it's not unusual for it to have two to four different kinds of organisms that it injects into your, your bloodstream. And 
So let's say you pull out the tick right away and you take three weeks of antibiotics. Uh, chances are you won't be giving all those germs a head start and you'll wipe most of them out. Uh, if you get antibiotics later, there are there are some organisms that can't be killed by doxycycline, which is the frontline antibiotic. And that would be a parasite like Babesia, which is a red blood cell infection, and you need an anti-malarial drug for that. So if you start antibiotics late, the parasite's already entrenched in your liver and your bone marrow, you're going to have to go to a doctor who really understands tick-borne disease and say, okay, you have Lyme and Babesia, and if you have Bartonella, you need a different class. Bartonella is a tiny little intracellular rickettsia family bug. You'd need a different set of antibiotics. So you get it treated early. You can just keep the germ numbers low so your own immune system can take care of all that stuff. But it's the chronic disease, which structurally is more likely now because we don't have a good test in the beginning. And then there's some misinformation about how long a tick needs to be attached, et cetera. In your book, Chris, which I have not read yet, but I'm definitely buying, does it have in there, because it is about the secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons, but do you go into kind of symptoms that maybe are atypical or how someone could assess whether they might have had, because long Lyme disease, you wouldn't still see a tick or a ring or anything. So do you put anything in there about how to uh, assess that and maybe what long-term treatment or options there are, or if you don't, is there another resource you can recommend? Because my brother has it. Yeah, so I, I have to say Lyme disease itself, it's a neurological disease primarily, so it can infect various organs and brain, some people brain joints or whatever, which answers Ricky's thing. I just go into the experience of my husband and I, which was pretty bad, but we're the lucky ones because we got diagnosed a year after we were bitten before we were completely uh, destroyed. <laughs> we were, after a year of undiagnosed Lyme disease and babesiosis, we could barely function as human adults because it's mostly the brain on fire inflammation that makes it hard to be, to operate in this world. Uh, but I, I always recommend, there's a great symptom list on the largest Lyme disease nonprofit, which is LymeDisease.org. So there's checklists for various diseases and each combo of tick-borne diseases has sort of a unique set of symptoms that go with it. And, and they also had advice on finding a doctor and getting insurance coverage and all those things that you really have to fight for in the current system that doesn't believe in chronic Lyme disease. Charlie, you want to jump in there? No, I'm just fascinated listening to this. It's not a topic I know much about. I haven't had any experience with Lyme disease. I mean, I know about governments weaponizing things, but uh, I don't really follow. I mean, it just, I just don't don't know too much about it. Um, maybe that's because geographically, I was always in the Southwest and not in the Northeast like you. So it wasn't on my radar, but, but it's... Um, I mean, it feels, I mean, it sounds like it would be debilitating and something that you just, you know, don't ever get a break from. And it sounds horrifying. I'm, um, I'm sorry for anyone that's having to go through this. It sounds awful. Well, one thing is the test 
the tests for Lyme disease were based on an East Coast strain around New York, Connecticut, Long Island. Um, and we've recently discovered another Lyme-like disease in the South and in California, and we don't even have tests for those. So that's also another explanation on people who have you know, a Lyme-like disease and they take the test and it says they're negative and so they go on. And a lot of the symptoms of untreated Lyme disease look like fibromyalgia, that's very common, MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, oh, there's some overlap with chronic fatigue, which is probably started by a viral infection. And um, of course, depression, <laughs> which when you're sick, you're depressed, but also Lyme disease gets in your brain and creates all sorts of weird neuropsych symptoms. In but your in overall, yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, in the book, I, I, I was surprised as I researched how large and secretive the biological weapons program, including the entomological weapons program was. And those people who worked on it took a secrecy of, and the ones that I talked to in the 80s, they just don't want to give it up. So it was amazing that Willie Bergdorfer, the Lyme discoverer, was so forthcoming in the end, I think he felt a little guilty. And he has the most to lose because he was a very prideful man and he wanted re external recognition after he claimed discovery for Lyme disease. Uh, he was very proud, he was celebrated. And so for him to say, well, I hit another organism in the people who had Lyme disease and the ticks in that area and it's a sin of omission, which would be much really condemned in the scientific community if, if they read the book. <laughs> and you had some pushback after releasing the book, right? Yeah, I did. So uh, it, it didn't have as many reviews up front because we didn't want to leak what the, what the book was about. So it didn't get censored, but when it came out, it didn't get any major reviews because that was the run up to the whole fake news Trump election. So people were saying we didn't want to go out on a limb and read this evidence from a nobody. I, I didn't work for the New York Times. Uh, and then what happened, which was amazing, is a congressman, Cong uh, Christopher Smith from New Jersey, and his state has been really devastated by Lyme disease. He picked it up in a C-SPAN meeting and said, you have to read this book. It is very compelling and well-documented. And I think we should launch an investigation and declassify all the information about the bug-borne weapons program. And he put an amendment into the DOD defense budget. And he's done that three years in a row and it's gotten canned for various reasons. But I, I think when that happened, it became an international story. It just sounded so crazy, like you're stuffing diseases and ticks and dropping them on people. But, but I, I feel like I've put together a really good um, background and evidence that this indeed was a huge program. And there were many instances where these experiments were done on U.S. soil, a lot on tick-borne tularemia in Alaska. Um, 
the CIA was part of this program and they hired the Smithsonian Institution to collect birds from all over the world and pick ticks out of their noses and ears and send them to Dugway Proving Grounds to find really good ticks for various places like, oh, Vietnam, we need some weaponized ticks for Vietnam. So it, it's just huge and a lot of opportunity for accidents. And so like one of the craziest open air uncontrolled experiments was on coastal Virginia near Norfolk, um, a university researcher was funded by the army and the Atomic Energy Commission to make ticks radioactive, lone star ticks, which are non-native and carry deadly Rocky Mountain spotted fever and induce alpha-gal red meat allergy. So take those and release it in several sites around Virginia and then go back every month and collect those ticks, use the Geiger counter to see how many spread, how far, then put those radioactive ticks back in the grid where they were collected and keep doing that for a couple of years. And the site where he did that was on the Atlantic Bird Flyway. And sure enough, a year or two after those experiments ended, that's late 60s, the line, there was all these Lone Star ticks that there were established colonies in Long Island. People were dying like crazy of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And actually that's how, that's when they started really investigating what's going on here is early seventies when those spotted fever deaths happened. And then at the same time, there's this freaky uh, Lyme arthritis. They'd never seen it before. And at the same time in that same area, there was first in man, this Babesia red blood cell uh, infection. So what I did in the book was go back to the history, not just when they discovered the Lyme spirochete, but what happened before and what were the clues with animals and people that something unusual was going on. So for three freaky new diseases to show up in that very small area, and I did animations to show that was, that was, the ground zero where it's been spreading, it's spreading now, it's going, you know, past Ohio, up through Canada, Ontario's Lyme cases have gone up 4X in the last couple of years, down through the Carolinas. So you just said something that really alarmed me that there is a tick that can give you. I just looked it up, alpha gal syndrome, where you would be allergic to red meat and mammal products. I mean, given the agenda that's uh, on the on the board right now, I imagine what, they're working on that. That's what I was clumsily trying to get at, was that exact thing. I that's just never I even thought. heard of that. That's like, it's just obviously super dangerous. Even con I didn't even want to mention it, but I figured, well, I guess it's out there. <laughs> I don't want to put those connect those dots, but that no, seems I saw like a guy scary. At a conference talk about it. Wouldn't it be great if we use this to, you know, make everybody sick so that they wouldn't be able to even physically eat red meat um, because they'd all have this virus? Wouldn't that be great? And everyone on the stage is going, "Yeah, that would be great." And the red, I guess everyone else is watching it like you sound like a lunatic for this. But that's, I think, the mentality of of these people. There's no, you know, the ends justify the means. So whatever it, the goal is, get people to stop eating red meat. Who cares if we have to poison them with, you know, some new tick-borne disease? And it's a really rare thing because I remember looking up to see because I kind of thought veganism just 
seem I'm married to a Texan. Like it seems like a mental illness. You know, <laughs> I looked. I was like, is anybody even allergic to red meat? And it's very, very rare in nature for that to be the case. But that it's like ant abuse, I guess. For you know, if you if you want to stay off of alcohol, you take ant abuse. This would be like that. Boy, it just definitely seems like something that the big T they would pull. Yeah, we don't really know why this all of a sudden occurred in the early '80s. This alpha gal thing. There hasn't been much research uh, until this year when the tick-borne disease working group is trying to get NIH to, and CDC is concerned about it. So there's a web page now, and they're trying to allocate more research dollars. It's very strange, uh, and I've heard a lot of theories thrown out. Nobody really knows why. But to back up to why we weaponized ticks in the first first place, there's a passage in the 1959 army report annual report that says the advantage of arthropods which are ticks fleas and mosquitoes as bioweapons carriers are these they inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier and they will remain alive for some time keeping an area constantly dangerous so it's like a stealth weapon because you can't find fingerprints <laughs> or serial numbers on a tick and the the Pentagon strategy, which there's many documents on it, are, are let's just spray these in, um, weaponized insects over an area that we want to take over and we'll make the population chronically ill. Uh, sometimes they mix viruses and bacteria and toxins with a confusing set of diseases and then it'll just, it'll be easier to take it over. They had lethal weaponized insects and then chronically incapacitating. They felt like chronically incapacitating is better because if you took over a city, then you could talk to the power plant operator and know how to work it, et cetera. So it's, the point is with COVID and, uh, and these tick-borne diseases, we need an ethical oversight for this research, an adult in the room to say, I know you have your military objectives, but we need to think about humanity because really some of these experiments are crimes against humanity. And it's human hubris to think we can control living systems without blowback. Can I quote Uncle Ted or would that be bad manners? Please do. Go for it. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to get into that, but there was a passage in this book I read that said that the scientists who work on things that can really change the world, like there could be, there's a non-zero chance of something catastrophic happening, their interests are, you know, there's a, a great chance that they will be like Nobel Prize winners. So when they take a 1% chance of something catastrophic happening, it's greatly outweighed by this massively awesome thing that would happen to them. Whereas if you weigh that 1% chance against the interests of 7 billion people as a collective, and I'm no collectivist, but it is logical that the right, he would never make the right answer for everybody. Like they, they cannot that what to kind of support what you're saying to have the decision-making made by the people who would benefit from whatever it is they're after. They cannot make the right decision as far as the impact they might have on everyone. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Dr. Strangelove by Kubrick, but I loved in all the military offices over all the offices, 
there were a sign that says peace is our business. And I think that's sort of like the group bias bubble that these worst case scenario military groups get into. And they're just thinking, oh, this pandemic will be bad. It'll be bad, it'll be bad, you know, and they, they aren't like measuring the risks of, for example, like putting a cleavage site in a bat virus. <laughs> like if it got out, what would happen? Well, they were they were certainly gung ho about rolling out mRNA injections and that technology. And before coronavirus was set, it, it's uh, I guess feet over here. The, it was something that had been pushed. At least there's um, Fauci and Peter Daszak and a number of other people on record at the Milken Institute going back at least to 2019, if not 18 and 17, talking about this technology. And to an earlier point uh, about long-term customers, um, they, they've been created with these, with these products or with a, a you know, combination lab natural disease, regardless of whether that was the intention or not. They've made lifelong customers. You can go the more nefarious route and suggest that that was the plan the entire time, or you could just look at the thing for what it is in front of you right now on September 26, 2022, and say, without a doubt, these things have created lifelong customers, these products have for these companies. And who wouldn't then at that point in that position want to take advantage of a situation like that because if history has taught us anything it's that once you introduce a pharmaceutical solution to the problem you create an entire cottage industry and what the products release afterwards in order to deal with the side effects from that product and then there's another micro cottage industry for the side effects of the side effects and so on and so forth so it's a, a an avalanche of perpetuality in terms of the different financial ecosystems that can be created around these products to say nothing of the surveillance industry that comes along with it. Well, Steve, I think you bring, you bring up a really good point and that's the incentives of our current US medical system, which is if you, I've spent a lot of time sort of looking at the differences between HIV AIDS and Lyme disease. They, the causative organisms were discovered in the same year. And with HIV AIDS, there was a pharmaceutical incentive to do the deep dive in research and patent a new antiviral. And certainly 40 years later, people with HIV AIDS, it's more of a chronic conditions. There are drug cocktails that they can go to. With Lyme disease from day one, they knew that the cure was cheap off patent antibiotics. And so all the researchers went to AIDS and antibiotics was the ugly stepchild. And, and the thing that pharma made money on were the drugs that treated the symptoms. So long-term sequelae for Lyme disease is like MS, like it's a hyper inflammatory condition and B cells going everywhere. So the MS drugs are blockbuster drugs. You're, the the uh, rheumatological joint drugs are big. The antidepressant drugs, because when you're sick, you're really depressed. 
and you're miserable and you're fatigued. So the money is in treating the symptoms, not going after the cure. And then a complicating uh, factor with Lyme disease is that the, the major medical society that treats infectious diseases, all of a sudden they took up as their number one priority to prevent antibiotic overuse. So even though we have the cure, which would be multiple antibiotics to target the different phases of the Lyme bacteria, they want to minimize that use. So the U.S. even uses much less, recommends much less antibiotics than the U.K., who has a national health plan and everything's on one database. They can see the outcomes and they say, we're going to blast it, blast Lyme disease with antibiotics 21 days in the beginning because we don't want to have to pay for that stuff later on versus in the U S they're just kicking that chronic disease down, down the road because they'll cha-ching make money later. Well, they try to make money with the vaccine, the Lyme disease vaccine, because vaccines are so profitable and it didn't work. And in some cases, I've even heard stories about people actually getting Lyme or Lyme like symptoms from the vaccine. There's a, uh, I remember when you were on uh, my show the first time, I was doing a little bit of research and I ran into Dr. Hotez on the Jerogan podcast. And uh, as I'm sure many people know, he's a <clears throat> very pro vaccine. Uh, uh, doctor, and uh, mostly because he's also making some money off that. But that's another story for another day. He, but there. So I didn't listen to the whole episode of when Doctor Hotez was on Rogan. I did listen to some of it, but this must have been a part that I, I must have missed or didn't get to. But there was a part in the discussion where Rogan and him are talking about the Lyme disease, disease vaccine, and he's he's pushing this idea that the Lyme disease vaccine got taken off the market, not because it didn't work, but because people were skeptical of it and people were uh, talking poorly of it. And Rogan brings up the point that, hey, well, then why didn't they take the MMR vaccine off the market? Because or other vaccines that people have been skeptical of. Um, And then he actually had a personal story of, I don't know if it was his manager or maybe his manager's kid or significant other, but somebody close to Rogan uh, claims that they got Lyme disease from the vaccine. So Rogan kind of actually pushed back and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, that's not what happened. He's like, I know somebody who got sick from the Lyme disease vaccine and that's why they took they took it off the market. That's one of the reasons. So um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, un, that's the unfortunate thing about our... Uh, care or sick care or whatever you want to call it it's just it's all about money it's about uh, profit and if vaccines are profitable then they'll go down that route and they'll neglect you know it's another option that is cheaper and probably works better i i, I had a similar conversation with um Jim Abrams, he's the filmmaker who did uh, Naked Gun and Airplane and all, all those movies back in the day. And uh, he had a son. He actually had, he actually did a movie um, about this story, but he had a son who was having these violent seizures and he couldn't, couldn't figure it out. They went to all the best doctors. They kept giving him all these prescription drugs and even on what now he knows is was a unnecessary surgery to try to fix this issue. Nothing worked. And then he found some research from John Hopkins that they were having success with these seizures, curing these seizures with the ketogenic diet. And uh, the brain would use the ketones as an energy source and it was uh, helping with this issue. 
And um, he goes to his doctor and he's like, why didn't somebody suggest this? He's like, well, they were doing re this research. And then eventually they're like, well, let's figure out how we can get somebody in ketosis, you know, using prescription drugs or let's figure out, you know, uh, a route uh, that's more about or basically they, they it was a dietary solution that they didn't want to explore anymore. And they were looking for other ways of, of fixing the issue. So it wasn't something that doctors were, were suggesting to their patients. So he ends up putting his kid on the ketogenic diet, cures his child of all these uh, seizures. He becomes a frustrated parent because he's like, you're telling me all this stress that was put on my child, on our family, because they, they his other children felt like they were neglected because this one child, Charlie, needed all this attention. Um, he's like, all this could have been possibly prevented if you only suggested this and they never even suggested it. And um, so he ends up starting the what, what is now called the Charlie Foundation, all about dietary solutions to a lot of different issues, autism, um, all, you know, uh, seizures, all these different type of things. And um, but it's a similar story. It's like there's a solution that works, but it gets dismissed or neglected or put on, um, you know, the the put in back burner because they want to look for a more profitable solution. Well, solution sounds like 20th century or at least pre-COVID thinking, Ricky. What, what we're looking for now is longevity and new definitions of words like you know, vaccine or herd immunity or things like that. And to the point to where um, we're, we're now looking at uh, success as protection from liability not whether or not the product actually works. We're, we're looking at uh, efficacy as whether or not the bit we remove from one to eight mice and call it a clinical trial and we're done, that, that's what works. If the piece fits, it's got efficacy and we're good. And, and as long as we can keep changing the definition of words in real time and allowing people to just, you know, as long as people keep swallowing it, this kind of nonsense is going to continue. It really is. Big Pharma is moving to a subscription service. Much right. Like, like Netflix. They would just like you to subscribe to their plethora of products each month. Oh, and it looks like you need an upgrade. Here's well, your... Luckily, we can do it remotely now that you have the the chips in you, which is mm -hmm. convenient. You know, I had, a, I had a question about this. You mentioned um, the, the types of insects that you were talking about. Uh, you mentioned mosquitoes. And mm -hmm. now we have reports out recently of genetically modified mosquitoes connected somehow again to our friend Bill Gates being released. And I, you know... <laughs> my little conspiratorial mind gets cranking and I start thinking this, this sounds like a really bad idea. Do we have any sort of understanding of what exactly a genetically modified mosquito is? And does that make it, is it reasonable for us to think that that could be weaponized? Well, it has been in the past. So yes, but uh, I would say uh, the, the, what they did to the mosquitoes or what they are doing is they are using CRISPR, the gene splicing technology to sterilize a bunch of male mosquitoes and then release them in a population. I think they did this in Brazil and then the females would mate with these sterile um, male mosquitoes and then 
supposedly there would be fewer mosquitoes next the following year. I had someone at the CDC tell me, well, they did that in Brazil and the next year there are more mosquitoes than ever. So again, I think it's, uh, and then also I, I work closely with a researcher at Stanford who worked with mosquitoes. He's, uh, he's, he works in um, Southeast Asia a lot in Africa and he heard they were gonna do this experiment and he flew out to Hawaii to a conference to say, you have to be very careful if you do these experiments. They need to be controlled at first because there are all these unintended consequences that our little monkey brains can't even envision. And then also just by the nature of biology, insects have so many more generations than we do. And they can, whatever we do genetically, they can outwit us by, with a numbers game. Yeah, I've read I've read a bit about the mosquito project. They're they're just adding something to the genetic code. But what they've also figured on top of that is that if this is successful, they can scale it. And there's a lot of papers around this project where they're talking about the hope before in the future being able to take this, you know, rewriting program uh, into the mammalian realm. They think that it's something that could potentially help with, this is their words, overpopulation. Um, and it's just a casual conversation, again, about how you can uh, artificially manipulate the human being and the human genome and turn it into whatever you want, as long as you can sell it under the guise of it's for the children or it's for the common good, it's for your health and safety. Um, it, it, that's, I mean, it, I, I feel the same way Charlie does when I'm like, oh, Bill Gates has, you know, the tens of thousands of bioengineered mosquitoes. Great, great. That's super. What could possibly, what could go, possibly wrong? go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Coke. But and the I, idea I that we, mosquitoes we to... aren't just, I'm sorry, the idea that mosquitoes aren't just going to make more mosquitoes, that they're there to somehow yeah, like just... eradicate mosquitoes instead of do what mosquitoes would do in the first place, which is just make as many more as they possibly could. That's, that's lunacy. It's, yeah, cartoons. And you have to think of the whole system, which is, well, if you cut the mosquito population, are you going to kill starfish and birds? It's again, this human centric thing where we can control everything. And we're somehow in this living bubble that isn't affected by the rest of the thing. I, I just think we need to look at the whole ecosystem system and put things in balance and think about, well, if there's mosquito overpopulation, is there something in environment that we can do and not mess with human, with genetic, the genetic code of the planet? Yeah, but I, mean, I, I don't yeah. I don't believe I, I think we have to be careful about demonizing scientists because a lot of them who work in these organizations have good intentions. Uh, if you look at the COVID thing before the COVID vaccine, all the fastest vaccine to get to market took seven years. And then with COVID, we did a vaccine in a year. And so we just because of panic, we threw out all the ethical and, and safety checks and guardrails that the other vaccines had had to make sure there are no side effects. So 
there's something about our system that was sick in the decision making and the communicating process. And we need to look at it from a higher systemic level and not create more of this polarizing arguments between the scientists. The only way science works is if there are collegial debates about the data. We need to stick to the data. So that's that's my opinion. And I don't believe in vast conspiracy theories. I believe in human fallibility if we don't put multiple minds together to solve these really, really challenging problems, which are mostly of our own doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't want anyone to get the opinion that, at least me, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but I, you know, I've been here long enough. Nobody's suggesting that there are people waking up in the medical profession every morning en masse going, who are we going to slaughter today? No, that's not, no, no, no. And no, but the problem is nobody wants to be the person in the middle of the emergency that sticks their hand up and goes, hey, are we doing this right? Because it seems like the way that we used to do it, like last year, we're not doing that anymore. And that seems weird. Nobody wants to be that person because that person gets their head cut off. And the next 400 people that stick their hand up and go, hey, I got a question. They get their hands cut off and then they get told, oh, well, you don't have a functioning hand. I just can't work here anymore. Bye. Uh, and, and your license is staying with us too. And so it, it takes enough, uh, unfortunately, catastrophe to get enough people to go, hey, wait a minute, I have a question because the data that we have now says, uh, what all those one-handed people were saying last year. Well, and then the censorship, has, as Ricky knows, has been a huge problem because there's there's no forum for dissenting opinions. And, and science, you need that. I mean, you because there's so many different perspectives and people can look at the same information and come up with different conclusions. People can neglect some information and, and highlight other information. I mean, it, it all can be manipulated to some extent. And like you said, I mean, when you have humans involved, humans have opinions and incentives and agendas, and that can influence, you know, the way they look at things and what they say. And, um, the, the most recent Rogan podcast, he had a guy, kind of an insider in uh, the healthcare uh, world, and we're constantly talking about big pharma and um, and rightfully so, obviously, but he, he puts a lot of emphasis on the health insurance companies and how much of our current issues are due to them and how much control and influence they have on what medicine you, you can or cannot get, um, what's medicines are uh you know they're are more expensive than others and all these things and he really gives a, a great insight look so I, I highly recommend people checking that out chris crusher dr chris crusher i know his first appearance on rogan uh years ago he um he really went deep into how it all works and how it keeps people sick i mean we live in a symptom management world anyways i mean it, it's we all kind of know that uh, health insurance companies will not cover uh, basically anything that isn't a symptom that you have right now. I mean, it's, it's all about like, well, you're not sick. Well, we're not, we're not going to help you not get sick. We're just going to help you when you do get sick. And, um, which obviously doesn't prevent anything. Uh, so I mean, the whole, the whole system is very much broken. And when there's money involved, I remember when we had Dr. Robert Malone on my show and when we had him on the Young Unwanted, he would talk about the, 
you know how important it was to be to, to be the scientist or the team that patented something and had something patent and and you know getting your your research peer reviewed and all these like ego things that happen uh, with science and influences science and and it really gave a nice inside look into how a lot of uh, there's a lot of internal issues with, with these things that even many of us aren't aware of with people just trying to get uh you know written their names in the history books of, of science and and that happens too you know and uh so yeah w w without a doubt i mean the, the recent rogan podcast they were talking about a study that's like from the 1940s that people still reference today about i don't i think it was that testosterone uh treatment will lead to cancer and increase your chance of cancer and how like 99 percent of, of doctors will tell you that and it's all because of this one study that's been debunked that nobody's ever like looked into and found out that like okay it was a bad it was a bad study and it's been debunked but they'll just keep referencing that and you see that sometimes in science where they'll reference something over and over and over again and nobody ever goes back and like okay let me see you know how good of a uh, research this study really is that we have built you know everything else from and um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's important to question everything. And the problem, like you said, Chris, with 2020 and, and so forth, they didn't let you question everything. You couldn't hear a opposing opinion. And in the medical world, that was always acceptable. You could go get a second opinion from a doctor. That was okay. It didn't mean that the last doctor was a, a you know, pseudoscience lunatic conspiracy theorist. No, it just means that you had two doctors who had two different opinions. That was completely acceptable. Obviously, we I think we're all probably uh, agreeing that this was much bigger than just suppressing somebody because they had a, a conflicting opinion. It was because of obviously these much greater agendas and and there's plenty of evidence and much of the evidence that Dr. Naomi Wolf is, is uh, uncovering to prove that. Uh, so yeah, w without a doubt, I mean, we have a broken system. I don't know how you fix it, but uh, you know, it's m mostly money and power motivated. I think we got. Yeah, and we have. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. I think we got to look at the politics of science over the last two years. We 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 never really, you know, may, most people never really considered that. Oh wow, wait, hang on a second. I thought it was just pure science going on there. It's like, whoa, no. I mean, there's funding you have to be considerate of. There's peer review and you had that acceptance thing. I mean, academia and and. There's a lot of egos and a lot of money and a lot of a lot of a lot of fuckery going on in this. So so science isn't as pure as we would like it to be. And so I think I think that we watched the politics of that with Fauci and how he would dictate science and nobody was really sure who was in charge. Do we listen to Fauci? Do we listen to the CDC? They're changing definitions of things and they're I mean what what is this? So we got to look kind of behind the scenes of these sciences. And I think we saw for the first time that it's not as well-oiled of a machine as we would like to believe that it is and that there's some influence happening there. And, and we maybe should, should recognize it if for no other reason to, to, than to try to get rid of it. Yeah, and, and not to demonize scientists is what what I have found in the same problem with academia, uh, same problem with a number of institutions, is that where the money winds up, 
is where all of the attention goes. And if all of the attention, if all of the science, not not Fauci's I am the science TM, but, you know, like general science, if all of the money is going into biomedical or pharmaceuticals or all of the money is going into, you know, coming up with building a better killing machine. If you're a, a, the kind of, you know, scientist or engineer that is going into um, a, any sort of tech sector, really, you know, you're being pushed into that, driven into that, making a better killing machine, making a better drug. Make, and so if there's no money and no opportunity to do anything that genuinely benefits humanity or would further health overall, not further the bottom line of a, a pharmaceutical company and their investors, but further health. Uh, the, there's just, there's no cash, there's no incentive. So there's nobody who's going to be like, oh yeah, I would like to go into the good guy profession of this field because the, it's just not there. Not, not that it doesn't exist, but as an opportunity, you're severely constricted. Um, yeah, and the publisher parish uh, ecosystem now is is hard. People exaggerate their studies, the findings. Uh, there's a lot of there's sort of like a mafia of academics who, if they have a certain hypothesis, they can shoot down like the new innovative ideas, and the new innovative ideas often don't get funded. So that's another symptom of a sick system. Yeah, you call up your journalist buddy with this particular journal or reviewers them, hey, I'd like to buy you a drink. And then while you're there, you trash the study and he goes out and his journal has an article trashing the study and then all of the other respected ones do. And because media is done assembly line style, by the time it gets out of the journal and into the MSM, they've got three people that they can get a pull quote from, all of whom either wrote the article for or were part of the initial trashing of the journal article, which makes it debunk quack science in the mainstream almost overnight without anyone really having to do any work. Yeah. And the, the thing about science, and I, not to pick on scientists or, or doctors or any, because there's a lot of good people everywhere, but for a while, it's like we let's understand. go after roofers next, just to make Roof. it fair. Roofers they got it roofers. coming. They, <laughs> I feel bad for roofers. That's a tough gig. I um, was but, one. I think. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, you know all about it. But um, yeah. But the thing is, like anywhere where there's money or profit to be made, it basically there's going to be corruption. And for a long time, people thought that the scientific world or the medical world was immune to that issue. And I think now it's kind of been exposed that it's like, oh no, they have the same issues that politics has, that, um, you know, everything has and basically. And uh, and I, I think it's probably a good thing that like people are waking up to that because hopefully we can filter out the bad people and the things that don't work and we can reintroduce or, or, or um, rethink the way things work and, and, and create a better system. So, uh, you know, I think that's, some of the good that's come out of 2020 is that you know the term experts doesn't mean that you can't question them and we you know i i think we we live in a world today where people are becoming much more skeptical for good reason more, more skeptical of anybody who is considered an expert because you realize how how uh you know the curtains kind of been pushed back a little bit where now people are watching 
documentary or the docu-series Dope Sick and we're like, oh, okay, this is how this works. You can pay off the FDA. You can reword something. You can uh, fudge the, the statistics or the research to get the outcome you want. And and that's how this problem happened. It wasn't just accidental, you know. So, um, uh, you know, I and then people look at Dallas Buyers Club. I know a lot of people were going back and rewatching it during 2020 because of that whole thing and like the pushing of AZT and 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 you know, just all the corruption and conspiracy. That and look at the food pyramid. I mean, look at the sugar industry. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on where. A lot for a long time. If it was coming from a doctor, if it was coming from um, the government, you know what you should be eating, what you shouldn't, what they're recommending. Uh, people didn't question that stuff, and now I, I think people are finally questioning it and and really doing their own research, which they should do. And and I think um, you should never just listen to a expert because they're called an expert. But um, but yeah, after that long rant, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> well, we're wrapping it up. Why don't we have um, Monica? Why don't we? Why don't you tell us all where we can find you? How's your? Oh, new thank show? you so much. Uh, you can always tweet at me at Monica Perez Show, and you can find me at rockfin.com slash propaganda report. And you can find all my free stuff solo on uh, my feed, Deep Dives with Monica Perez, on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you. Yay. Steve's doing the best morning wake up show, I think, in the. Galaxy? Right. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Thank you. Yeah. Rockfin.com slash AM wake up uh, Thursday nights and Sunday mornings specific uh, uh, slow news day. Rockfin.com slash slow news day. Social media at slow news day show. Um, eternally grateful and humble to be part of the best ensemble podcast on the planet. You guys are awesome. Uh, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to, to show up here and babble. You, you rock. I hope I didn't oversell it. Chris Newby, where can people find your books? You mentioned uh, Amazon Prime for the documentary. Um, tell us, where so, can we find you? So, yeah, so the, so the book is anywhere you buy books. Uh, you can buy it at Amazon or your favorite indie bookstore because we have to keep them alive. And uh, there's a Kindle version and uh, um, audio version. So... Uh, and then I have a, a great, it's Kindle doesn't have very good photographs. So I have a great site, chrisnewby.com with all the photographs from the book and documents um, that I discussed, some of them. And that's Chris with a K. Awesome. Uh, Ripple Effect? Yeah, the Ripple Effect podcast.com. Uh, audio is obviously available everywhere you can get audio. Even though I've been hearing a little bit of feedback about uh, Spotify censoring some of my shows, hopefully it's just a glitch. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. I don't. But I've had a few listeners reach out to me saying that they've had some issues, and this has happened a few times. So who knows? But you can always go to the RippleEffectPodcast.com, find all the episodes and all the platforms I'm on. I'm on just about all the major video platforms minus YouTube. Uh, because of the censorship issues Chris brought up earlier. And um and and yeah, so you or you can go to the rippleeffectpodcast.com and find all that stuff and more. And uh like I, I mentioned in the beginning of the show, also don't forget the union of That will also bring you to all our sites and all our links and all that stuff. And Charlie, you oh and of course we gotta let people know Midnight Mike who's typically yep. with us, the OBDM show, awesome show, Charlie's 
favorite show actually. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and one of the funniest shows out there. Please check out uh, Midnight Mike and the OBDM show and Sam Tripley, which uh, Chris has uh, been on. Actually, I think we've all been on uh, Sam Tripley's show multiple <laughs> times uh, and samtripley.com. You can find all 900 shows that he hosts and uh, co-hosts. And uh, that's a little bit of sarcasm, but um, he does <laughs> does he does a oh, lot really? of podcasts. I do love his explanation too. He's like, well, instead of talking to myself, I just do podcasts. He's which got a is, point. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a way to monetize uh, his insanity. He'll tell you that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Macroaggressions available wherever podcasts are served and in video format on uh, vigilante.tv now. Yeah, Berwick uh, added me there. So you can, you can find it there. Uh, band.video, Rockfin, and Odyssey. You can follow me on Twitter at macroaggression. Thanks, everybody. Great show. Yeah, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Also, that was Jason Burmis who dropped in for a little yep, bit. Burmis was in. Yeah, and then uh, uh, Scott from the Rebunked uh, podcast, Rebunked Stock News, and who else jumped in that jumped out? Oh, of course, of course, uh, uh, Doctor yeah. Naomi Wolf. Dr. Check Naomi her out. Wolf. Also, we'll links in the show description. Thanks, everybody. Hopefully, will you guys all join us again in the future? Union of the Unwanted. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Take care.